we have entered this year uh, into our what I would call our doctrinal series. Um, all of the stuff the last couple of years together have been uh, preliminary, things that really give you a overall structure of the Bible and how it works for you. <clears throat> now we're, we're getting into what the Bible would call the furnishings. Kind of got the framework up of the house, you know, and uh, got the walls up and the roof on, and now we're going we're gonna to do the inside wiring and get everything connected. And uh, <clears throat> the doctrinal series in the Bible has already been clearly laid out by the Holy Spirit of God. It doesn't take a Bible college or it doesn't take a, a theologian to uh, put a book together. God has his own systematic theology, which is built on what I call the seven series. And uh, <clears throat> the seven series, as we've discussed before, <clears throat> are, um, are basically uh, a series of doctrinal studies that follow a pattern. <clears throat> Not only do they follow a pattern in each one of them, but as you go through them, <clears throat> you begin to see them connecting to each other. And overall, they form a, what, what I call, and I've told you this before, <clears throat> they form a real safety net um, of Bible doctrine that you won't ever fall into heresy, that you ever won't get screwed up with something in the Bible. <clears throat> they are so designed by God in such a way that they actually interlock with each other. <clears throat> and that's why I've told you, and I use the example of a safety net, you know, one doctrine for each line, <clears throat> and it crosses over, and pretty soon you have a net of doctrine that you can't fall through. And um, we've talked about four of them so far, and uh, we've talked about the seven mysteries, uh, we've talked about the seven judgments, we talked about the seven baptisms, uh, and then last time we talked about the seven resurrections. So you've already begun to see how that they <clears throat> unfold themselves, and each one of them deals with a, a specific doctrinal teaching that is, is, is very important. And today, <clears throat> I want to talk to you about the uh, seven things that a child of God is not to be ignorant of. Yeah. You only covered three resurrections last time. Oh, I did? Yeah. I didn't finish the resurrection? Yeah, you need to go on number four. Oh, okay. Is that true? I'm not lying. I'm not saying he's lying. I don't know. Oh, okay. Good. Well, then I better... What is the last one I gave you, the judgment... Uh, uh, you said resurrection, didn't you? So I gave you... Uh, <clears throat> what was the last one I gave you? The first three you gave us. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> gotcha. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> so then let's finish up the seven resurrections, and we'll gladly jump into the seven things that uh, obviously I'm ignorant of this morning. <laughs> now, the first one, resurrection, obviously, was Christ. <clears throat> And the second one was the Old Testament saints. And then the third one was the resurrection of your spiritual body that we talked about um, in salvation. And I see now why it took so long we didn't get through that one when in Romans 8. Now the fourth one will be found in Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> And this will be <clears throat> verse 25 and 26. It says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, uh, lest ye should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. 
And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness of Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I will take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved of the Father's sake. And then a great verse that most people misunderstand, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And everybody takes that to mean that Israel doesn't have to get right because they associate repentance with getting right. Repentance in the Bible is never defined as getting right. It's always defined as a change of direction. <clears throat> now, in that change of direction, you may do right, but primarily that's not what rep repentance means. You can use the word repent like uh, God did with Noah, it re or, or God did back with Noah. It repented that God made man. Didn't mean that he was sorry that he made man. It means he's going to change directions with man. And of course, you know, that's the primary uh, definition, so you want to remember that. <clears throat> then you have uh, here he says that, uh, and what we want to focus on here is uh, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now, come back to Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to show you uh, the definitive passage on this resurrection. Now, the difference, obviously, and you should, have, you should know this by now, easily, um, the time we spent together. But the difference between the, uh, you as a Christian and the nation of Israel um, is that God deals with you and me as individuals, but he deals with them as a corporate nation. And, of course, the fundamental difference for that will be, yes, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven and your understanding of that. Everything that happened to you will happen to the nation of Israel. This is why in Exodus chapter 4, Israel is called God's son. Is called God's son because in a corporate sense, the nation is God's son. You and I, as individuals in the church age, are also God's son. But it's the difference between the two and how God deals with them. Obviously, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. You got saved the day you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. The nation of Israel will get saved as a nation. And of course, that's what uh, 11, 26, or 7, and then shall all Israel be saved. Now, that's not individual salvation. That is a national salvation. And that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around because, well, they don't know anything about the Bible. Uh, this, that is not an individual salvation. No Jew, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, anywhere in the Bible, outside of a Jew getting saved in the church age, ever gets what you got. Uh, he never gets a glorified body. He never gets the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. He never becomes part of the body of Christ. His salvation is a corporate national salvation of Israel becoming born again. And you find the word uh, regeneration, I think, two times in the Bible. One of them for you and for me when we got regenerated as individual, and then in the millennium when Israel gets regenerated as a nation. So their salvation is, 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 is not like yours and mine, and that's the thing you got to remember. Notice verse 27, uh, well, verse 26, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and he shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. Now there's the word Jacob used as we now know from back in Genesis 32 where God changed uh, Jacob's name to Israel. And from Jacob comes the 12 tribes. He's the father of the 12 tribes. So here again, we see this as a direct reference to the nation. 
and uh, he says there that the Zion, that a, the deliverer from Zion is going to be Christ. And he's going to come and he's going to deliver them. And he says, he shall take, uh, turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. <clears throat> Notice, nothing here suggests in any way, shape, or form an individual salvation. It's all a national salvation. And that is why it's so important to understand how this resurrection works. And look at verse 27, for this is the, my covenant unto them. I will take away their sins. Now that covenant, if you don't have it in, marked in there, will be Hebrews chapter 8. That's the new covenant that he makes with them when he comes back and he, he regenerates them. Or he resurrects them as a nation. Now come on back to Ezekiel 36. <clears throat> Make it 37. I'll make it 3625. <clears throat> the paragraph mark. Uh, start in 24, verse 4. I will, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Now, at the time Ezekiel writes this, they are in Babylonian captivity. They are out of the land. <clears throat> and <clears throat> This is a prophecy of God going to restore them at some point. And he does this. He says in verse 25, um, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. The sprinkling there is the Old Testament, and the Old Testament set up of sprinkling of water and blood, and they did on their offerings. Now look at verse 26. A new heart uh, also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's his, that is Christ at the second coming, coming back, and Israel getting restored and getting resurrected as, uh, as a nation. Now, he says in verse 24, and if you don't have this marked in here, you want to put this in. <clears throat> verse 24, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of your, all your countries. That's 1918. That is the beginning of the Zionist movement in the latter parts of the 1800s and the moving through history of the Jew gradually uh, God changing. And I've told you before that you have two major world wars. You have World War I and World War II. Despite all of the history, events, everything that takes place in those two wars, fundamentally, from God's standpoint, I've told you this before, World War I got the uh, Jew ready for the land, uh, got the land ready for the Jew, and World War II got the Jew ready for the land. So, 1918 there, he says, I will, I will, I will take you from among the heathen, because they're scattered everywhere through, uh, through the world, mostly in, um, in Europe. Uh, and then I will bring you into your own land. That's 1948. So you see, the prophecy is very specific in the regathering of the nation of Israel to bring them out of all the other countries, bring them back to their land. Now, this is a prophecy in Matthew chapter 24, uh, 25, obviously 24, that uh, the parable of the fig tree. And this is Israel becoming a nation in 1948. 
And then it says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, in verse 26. And a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put into you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart um, of flesh. This is, this is the millennium now. And this is the uh, Hebrews chapter 8, the new covenant that we're talking about over here in uh, Romans 11. So everything here is, is, is the beginning and the laying out of them being resurrected as a nation. And then chapter 37 is the detail of the resurrection. So let's read it together. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out, of, out, out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which is full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there was very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said, Prophesy again these bones, and, they may, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. Now, what he's talking about here, when you come down, look at verse 11. Um, then said he unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now, you have to see that. And, of course, he's saying here that they're down in a valley, and they're dry bones, very dry. That means Israel's been dead for centuries, spiritually speaking, as God's people, as God's nation, and she has been. So this is a prophecy of, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Lord uh, coming back and resurrecting the nation of Israel that is likened to a valley of dry bones. Now what's going to follow here, notice he says in verse 5, Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. Now, this is not about this, but since we're here, you want to mark that in your Bible. You want to mark this, and you want to mark over in Genesis, where he says, God breathed, uh, God made man out of the dust. I think it's Genesis 2, 7. And God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Uh, the Bible is very clear that uh, life does not start uh, in the womb uh, from God's standpoint. The Bible is very clear that life begins when uh, the breath of life enters into that baby. He said with Adam that he made him out of the dust of the ground. He's got a body, but he didn't he didn't become a living soul until the, God breathed the breath of life in him. Here, he says the same thing, verse 5, that, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. In other words, pretty conclusive that as far as God is concerned, I'm not talking about the doctors or the medical world. They're in a world all by themselves. I'm talking about from God's standpoint. Uh, it's very clear that from God's standpoint, life does not begin until the baby is born and breathes its first breath, and at that point, the baby becomes a living soul, and God counts that as life from his, from his definition of it. Doesn't matter what the pro-life people think or what this thinks and, or God thinks. Or the, now, obviously, the first thing that comes up is, and you're saying that abortion is not murder. The bo abortion is worse than murder. Uh, if abortion would just murder, it, it would be okay. Abortion is even worse than murder. Because when you conceive a baby, even though it's not life yet, from Jeremiah chapter 1, God, through that conception, already has plans for that baby. And when you, through your own selfish desires of pleasure, 
break that and, and kill that baby or abort that baby, then at that point, it, you're, you're absolutely ripping out of God's mind and God's plan what God had for that. Your inability to see that great truth, your disregard for it through your own sinful life and your own sinful pleasure has began the process of creating a life that God would have used, but because you don't want to get caught in it or you don't want to this or you don't want to that, you take that baby and snatch it out of God's mind and uh, abort it that it never can become life. Uh, now, the, the, the pro, pro-life people can't ever get to that. I mean, they're so hung up on it from a purely emotional standpoint of little babies being aborted and thrown in garbage cans. I get it. Uh, but, it, from the, but if you're going to stick with the Bible, which <laughs> we're Bible believers, so unfortunately we're going to do that, uh, you're going to find that that's just not the way that it works. Come over, to, uh, come over to the book of Luke. I'll show you something here. And of course, like I said, you, you don't get this from the Baptist churches, Baptist preachers. They couldn't explain it if their life depended on it. You're going to find in the Bible where God defines where life starts, and he's going to define where life ends. Now, this ends all the problems with life support system, when to pull the plug, when not to pull the plug, and is the person really dead, clinically dead, and all of that. Uh, God makes it much simpler. When you get every other sin into it, it gets complicated. So, um, let's see here. I don't want to go here. Okay, now... This is Luke chapter 1. Let's come here. And I know this is a sidestep, but I want you to have this. I don't know where else I would give you this in the, in the teaching. If, unless I just said, let me just do this. So, so we're here. Let's do it. And then we will have it. If you don't want to do it, you can get up and go to the bathroom. I'll signal when I'm done here. Now, Luke chapter 1. Now, Luke's always been an amazing book to me, as all the other Gospels are. But there's always a mindset behind the Gospels. God chose the book of Luke to talk about the physical birth of Christ because God wanted, if anybody was paying attention, he wanted the guy who wrote the book about physical birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a medical doctor, and that's Luke. Luke is a medical physician. And uh, so God chose him to make the statements about not only the birth of John the Baptist, but the birth of Christ. And, in, and, and he's very careful how he uses his words. And based on what we've already seen, then we, you know, we know where we're at. Now, look at chapter 1, verse uh, 15. This is talking about John the Baptist, who was a great man of God and God was used. But watch this. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. See that? He wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit of God in his mother's womb. He's filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Now look at verse... Uh, <clears throat> look at verse 31. <clears throat> look how Luke is careful with this. And behold, talking about Jesus now, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Then he wasn't named in the womb. 
Shao is the future tense after he's born. So technically speaking, you may give him a name, but God doesn't count his name till after he's brought forth as a son. Now look at verse 35. Look how Luke is very careful in what he says. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, here we come. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born unto thee shall be called the Word of God. In the womb, he wasn't called the Word of God. You know what it was called? A holy thing. See that? Now that's Dr. Luke. That's God picking a medical doctor to give you the details of the birth of Christ to make sure it stays in line with Genesis 2-7 and, and uh, you know, uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. And it's a thing where, you know, that's just what you have. And it says very carefully here that, <clears throat> that uh, he's not called the Son of God yet. I'll read it again. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing, that's Christ. Notice he's not given a designated purpose or a person yet. He's called a holy thing in the womb, which shall be born of thee, not born yet, shall be called the Son of God. He's not called the Son of God in the womb. You know why? Because he's a holy thing, not life yet. Now, that's tough for a pro-lifer to get, but then, you know, it, it is what it is. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, if everybody would stick with the book, you'd have a, you'd have a better shot at it, but, you know, uh, it's just what it is. Now, with that in mind, come to Exodus chapter 21. Now here's the ironclad <clears throat> verse stuck back here in Deuteronomy 10, uh, or Exodus 21 that every pro-lifer just hates. Unfortunately, probably more exacto cutters were sold uh, for this particular passage than any other passage in the Bible, but I'm sorry, it's still here. Now this is under the law. Two men fight, and there's a pregnant woman standing by. If those two guys get in a fight <coughs> and somebody throws a wild punch and hits the woman <coughs> who's with child and she falls down and she loses the baby, we have something that we do in that case. If these two men get in a fight, punch the lady accidentally or on purpose, and she dies, then there's another set of things that you follow in that case. So let's read it. <coughs> If men strive and hurt a woman with child, okay, so that her fruit depart from her, yet no mischief follow. The woman doesn't die, but she loses the baby. He shall surely, uh, he surely be, pun uh, he, he, <laughs> he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judgments determine, okay? So they get in a fight, knock the woman down, she loses the baby. But she herself doesn't die. No mischief follows. Then the husband decides or the judges decide what he's supposed to pay. 
Now, I'm going to read 21. I'm going to skip, and then I'm going to put 23 with it. I'm going to read 22, put 33 with it. If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, yet no mischief follow, woman doesn't die, he shall surely be punished. According to the woman's husband shall will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Now, verse 23, and if any mischief follow, the woman dies, then he shall give life for life. See that? The woman dying was life for life. The baby dying was just, give me 20 bucks. The punishment by the judges, but nobody gives life for life, because it's not life. Now you put all those together, and uh, now you have, um, you know, you have the Bible's teaching on when life begins. And it's a situation where uh, this takes away no way, shape, or form the, the sin of abortion. If anything, it, it drastically is, makes it much worse. I mean, if you were just taking a life, then that would be one thing. But you're not just, you're not taking a life because it isn't life. But Jeremiah chapter 1 says that God knew him in the womb. The conception between a man and a woman when she becomes pregnant is the kickoff point from which God then begins to initiate what he's going to do with that child. And then at that point, because of their sin or their ungodliness or the lifestyle they're in, they abort that baby they take and snatch from God's hand and mind what he was going to do with that child. And, uh, you know, if it was, if it was just murder, uh, it, would be, it would be a lot easier than, than reaching in God's mind and ripping that baby out of there simply because of the fact of your godless lifestyle. So this is what, this is what I, you want to you wanna understand when you get into the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. He's, he makes that statement, and I, I just couldn't go by that statement without, without giving you that because it's such a key, a key part of it. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute essential in understanding how, you know, God deals with things. And obviously, you know, the sin of abortion is no different than any other sin. You know, if a Christian does it, you just get it right with God. If an unsaved person does it, you know, it doesn't matter because they're all... They're guilty of everything anyhow, but uh, it's a thing where it's, it shows today how absolutely loose um, the minds are when it comes to accountability and responsibility for their lives. Uh, we look at our lives as one big pleasure circle, and anything that would shortcut that pleasure, get rid of it, and meaning a baby or whatever. And so... When you get into chapter 37 here, he says in verse 4 or 5, and you need to mark verse 5, and you can put those references, and later on you can go back and sew it all up and putting them back and forth. I have them everywhere. I got Exodus 21. I got, um, you know, all the places in Luke 1, everything. So you want to be able to, wherever you go, go wherever you need to go to get the whole thing down for you. And, um, and so he says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye, and, and ye shall live. And that's proof positive that uh, life doesn't start with God. Now, here again, I'm not talking about the medical world. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church who thinks that it, it, life begins at conception and it's a soul at conception. They say that because they want you to raise your kid Roman Catholic and then make sure he goes to the lake of fire. That's, they got an agenda. 
we're, not talk, we're talking about from God's definitive definition. Life starts when that baby comes out of that womb and breathes the breath of life. At that point, it, in God's accounting of things, it becomes a soul as far as he's concerned. And all that he's concerned with is all that really matters. Everything else doesn't really figure into it. Uh, so verse 7. <clears throat> Any questions about that? Yeah. Yeah, Job 33 is another one. Go ahead and read it real loud. It's uh, 33.4, I believe. And that one's dealing with inspiration when... Uh, <clears throat> There you go. And that's, and then you get into the next chapter, or the end of that chapter, it's connected to inspiration. God breathed on the Word of God, and that's where it became life. So it all works together there. <clears throat> so that's another one you can put in there. <clears throat> Any other questions <clears throat> about <clears throat> that? <clears throat> okay, move on in verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking of the bones came together, a bone to bone. Now, this is <coughs> given <coughs> a life through the Negro spiritual, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, you know, that nobody even knows it today, but back in the day, it was very popular. <coughs> and it's based on, uh, it's based on Ezekiel 37, it's a very biblical song, and uh, much more biblical than the white guys ever could get it. And it talks about them bones, them bones, them dry bones. You know, the foot bone connected to the ankle bone, the ankle bone connected to the leg bone, <coughs> the ankle bone connected to the hip bone, the hip bone connected to the, and then it ends, and hear the word of the Lord. See, out of Ezekiel 37, very biblical. <coughs> Never hear Amy Grant sing it, but it's very interesting. <coughs> uh, and then, when I beheld low the sinews, that's muscle, uh, and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, and there was no breath in them. See, still dead. Uh, then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, uh, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, they're dead, that they may live. See, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said unto me, <clears throat> Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We were cut off for our parts. And of course, that's, <clears throat> that's, their, that's their condition. That's their condition right now. That, that, uh, um, that, uh, that hope is lost was at 606 B.C. and 721, when Shennacherib from the north and Babylon from the south. And uh, they were cut off. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord, which I have opened the graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. And you shall put my spirit into you, and ye shall live. 
and I will place you in your own land. This is, now we're talking about, we're talking about the millennium now. This is after the second coming. And you shall, I put my spirit in you and you shall live. I place you in your own land and you shall know that I am the Lord, uh, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came unto me again unto me, saying, Moreover, son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and the children of Israel and companions, and take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel and his companions. All these are component parts of the nation of Israel. And join them uh, to one uh, to another into one stick, and they shall be one in thy hand. And when the children of Israel shall speak unto thee, saying, We shall not show thee uh, what thou meanest by thee, saying to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am take the stick of Joseph, which is in thy hand, of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and put them with him, even the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand, and the sticks apart upon thy rightest there shall be for my eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen. Now he's getting ready to say again what he said in verse 24. When he takes them from the heathen, that's 1918, whether they be gone in the captivity, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation. Now watch this. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. See the punctuation there? The first part of 22 is 1948. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel semicolon, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall no more be to, there's the, there's the millennium. Separated from the 1948, when he takes them into the land, to when he becomes their king in the millennium, by the punctuation mark. You see that all the time in the Bible. Now, the scholars would tell you that the punctuation marks are ridiculous, they don't mean anything. I will tell you that the Bible scholars are ridiculous, and they don't mean anything. So it's 50-50. Stick with the book. When it comes between taking what a Bible scholar says and the Bible says, drop kick the Bible scholar through a goalpost of life. Uh, he says, no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms, uh, more at all, the north and south, Judah and Israel. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, <coughs> nor with their uh, destable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them uh, out of their uh, dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them so they shall be my people and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. Uh, you'll see this in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 1, where David is their king. He's the prince in the millennium. Uh, that's covered in Ezekiel 44. Uh, and they shall have one shepherd and they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them. Uh, and they shall dwell in the land I, that I have given them, Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince, there it is, that's Ezekiel 44, forever. Moreover, I will make them a covenant of peace with them, that's Hebrews 8, and there shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them evermore. That's Ezekiel 40 through chapter 48. I want to study the sanctuary. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord do sanctify Israel uh, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. That's all millennium moving into eternity. 
Notice the Bible says that, uh, that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. That's very important. Sanctify means to be set apart. What he's saying there is that God, when he restores them, he goes back to his original purpose for them in the first place to be the only nation on earth that uh, is God's nation. You know, the word racist is a big word today, and everybody talks about racism. Everybody talks about racial profiling. Everybody talks about, you know, all this stuff. God is the biggest racist you ever saw. He's taken one nation and put him over every other nation on the planet and told you that he sanctified them and not the other nations. That's racism at a capital degree. But when you're God and you can make it all, and anybody doesn't like that, you're going to kill him, put in a lake of fire. Anyhow, you can do whatever you want to do. It works for you. So the fourth one, the resurrection, will be the resurrection of the nation of Israel. And you want to remember that they are, uh, they are, they are connected to uh, it all. And uh, it's a physical resurrection. Uh, it's not uh, of a nation, not an individual. And people today just have no clue of that. They absolutely do not understand that. And uh, the next one we're going to look at, or the fifth one, um, is the balance to it, and that will be the resurrection of you and me, or the body of Christ. And for that, we want to come over to, first of all, Romans chapter 8. We're going to see how these things cross over, because we talked about some of this before. Let's go to Romans 8 first. And we talked about this when it talked about the resurrection of your spiritual body last time, is where we stopped. And uh, I told you from Romans chapter 8 that there were two adoptions. And there's an adoption of you spiritually right now when you get saved, but you still have your body, physical body. <clears throat> and then there's the, there's the adoption of your body <clears throat> where you get this body changed and you get the glorified body of Christ. And so uh, where the, your spiritual body resurrection took place the day you got saved, that's your first adoption. The body of Christ is your second adoption when you get your glorified body. Now I know we talked about both of them last time, but <clears throat> come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, We'll look at this one. You can start to see how these things are overlapping. That's, <clears throat> that is God's way of cementing the truth <clears throat> by interlocking it with other truth. And it forms that net that you just can't get away from. It just, it, it just truth will always connect itself with other truth. False truth will always have to stand by itself because there's nothing it connected to other than more false truth. But at the end of the day, there's no connecting back to the Bible. Sooner or later, the Bible's going to reveal who you are. Whether you accept it or not, or reject it or not, is immaterial. It's like the thing of abortion. You can have all the bad teaching on it you want, and believe all that you want, and get your emotions and hyped up in it as much as you want. But at the end of the day, when you come back to the Bible, it separates the heresy from the truth. And then you're left with the decision. I don't care what the Bible says. I know what I believe. Thank you very much. Or... You adjust where you're at to the Bible when you see it for what it really is. That way, just about with everything. And that's why the Bible has to become, and here it's what I beat into you 
every chance I can. The Bible has to become your final authority for everything that you believe. Now, you're going to take a lot of flack for that because it, it, you get clobbered by people saying, well, you know, you think you're right and everybody else is wrong. And they, they miss the point. Or your church is the only church who, who's doing what's right. And they miss the point. The bottom line is it isn't about me. It isn't about the church. It's about the book that we believe. And if my believing that book and standing everything in it, believing it associates me with it, then I'm okay with that. If my church believe in a book and stands it on the book, if that makes you think that we're right and everybody else is wrong based on we believe the book, I'm okay with that too. End of the day, I know it isn't true, but if you're too stupid to see it, then that's your problem. End of the day, the book is the book. Let God be true and every man a liar. Everything has to go back to the book. Uh, I'm not someone who, who will take half or this or that or what we want or what we don't want. Whether we like it or not, there has to be an a final authority that defines what we do as right and wrong. It has to be the book. The fact that somebody doesn't study it anymore, doesn't follow it anymore, don't believe it anymore, that's not my problem. That will put you in the light and they cast you into a scenario that many times you will get clobbered for believing the book because they associate you having a final authority in your life as you setting yourself up as a final authority. And that is not true, even though you have a final authority, but it's, it's what it is. So this is what you, you want to remember in all this. All right, so <clears throat> uh, the resurrection of the body of Christ, and this will be uh, the resurrection when Christ comes back at the rapture, and uh, he... Uh, he raises the dead, and this is covered here uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we want to look at it in verse 51. And I think we looked at this last time too, but we're going to do it again. <clears throat> he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now you see, this was one of the seven mysteries. Now it's one of the seven resurrections. See, see how it crosses over? You find the same thing from two different angles. Two different angles. As a mystery, it was your, your spiritual body, your spiritual body being changed. As, a, uh, as a, one of the seven resurrections, it's the resurrection of the church, the body, right? They, the two different aspects, but they... Connect together. That's what truth does. Truth locks itself into other truth, and when you get a truth moving in that direction, it reveals to you all the different aspects of that truth. That's Bible doctrine. This is why God did it the way he did it. Trying to study, the, I'm not saying there are any other ways you can study the Bible. I mean, you got all kinds of books out there that everybody writes, you know, you got Schaefer's Systematic Theology, you got Edwards' book on this, you got Evans' book on that, you got all that stuff. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying if you want the bottom line from God's own perspective of a book that he wrote, you got to get it from him. Everything else will be second best. And, uh, you know, you just want to get, when it comes to the Bible, I mean, you may take second best when you buy a clothes or you buy this or you buy that or even in your friends or your relationships. Don't take it when it comes to the Bible. Now he says, verse 50 here, he says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. 
what he's just spent time doing down here in verses 40, 43, 44. He's been talking about the fact that there's two kinds of flesh. There's a flesh and blood flesh that is um, not connected with the kingdom of God. And there is the uh, incorrupt flesh, which is not flesh and blood in the same sense, that is incorruptible. And he's saying that we have to change, the resurrection of the church the, has to be changed from the corruptible flesh to the incorruptible. And this is what he's saying here. So he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall all not sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now this is the resurrection of the body of Christ that takes place at the rapture of the church. This is not, in particular, you getting your glorified body. That was the one we talked about in the mystery. This is another angle from it. And yet, in a little bit, if not this week, next time, I'm going to show you yet another angle from it that you put it all together and you connect. So when this corruptible, what you have right now, uh, shall be put on incorruption, and the mortal, your mortal right now, shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved uh, brethren, uh, be ye satisfied, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as we know uh, your labor is not in vain. And of course, uh, this is a great, this is a great um, fundamental truth that the body of Christ is going to be resurrected as a body. Now, where the nation of Israel together are put into a corporate nation which is called the Son of God, in the church, we as individual saved people are put not into a nation, but into a spiritual body in which we are all sons of God. That's the difference between Israel and the church. They are in a physical house the house of Israel, a nation, and corporately the Son of God. You and I are in a spiritual body, the body of Christ, and in that body we are individual sons of God. That's what you want to remember. Now along with that, you want to come over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we see a little more uh, insight into it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Now this is, in particular, the place where it's talking about the resurrection of the body of Christ, the church. He's not speaking to any one individual here. <coughs> but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Somebody's already died, buried that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now this is a general statement, not 
concerning you or me as an individual, but the body of Christ as a body. Many of them have died. Some are still alive. But this is the resurrection from the corruptible body of 1 Corinthians 15 to the incorruptible body uh, that is going to be glorified. For, we, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. <clears throat> and the dead in Christ shall rise first. All right, there's the people that have already died. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, this is where the changing takes place. It's instantaneously. All this takes place, as the Bible says, in a twinkling of an eye. <clears throat> the dead are raised first. They were sown in, as it said in 1 Corinthians 15, they were sown in corruption when they died. They're raised in incorruption. You were born in corruption, but at that moment, if you're still alive, <clears throat> then you are changed to incorruption. And, of course, this is... Um, this is what it's talking about here in a reference to the uh, resurrection of, of, the, of the body of Christ as, as a corporate body. The day you and I as the church <coughs> gets our glorified body, the second adoption, and then move into, uh, you know, our gathering together unto him, which, you know, is there. Here again, <coughs> obviously... <coughs> People have a tough time with eternity. Um, they have a tough time, uh, and it's just because they've never been taught. They, their mind just seems to shut down whenever they try to think past, uh, you know, Revelation chapter 22. Um, they just, they don't, they just, they, they just don't think. Uh, they don't, they don't think, you know, that, that God had a plan bigger than floating around in heaven for eternity, plucking a harp. That's about as all the farther as they get. Uh, they just can't seem to see that, you know, and I know why it is. It's because I've told you many times. <clears throat> Most of God's people look at their Christianity as the central point of what God is doing. Therefore, they see that in everything that God is doing. And that's not the way to look at it. <clears throat> Christianity is just a sliver of God's old plan. Trying to view this, everything else that God's doing through the sliver is not very, not very smart, but that's what they do. Well, consequently, they see what we have. It's like the old thing we used to call occupational dominancy. There were people that had a job that they think their job, and they may have just been a job opening the door, but they thought their job was the most important job in the world, and it dominated everything in their world. Everything that they saw, looked at, their viewpoint came back to how it affected them and their job. Well, that's the way Christians look at Christianity. They think it as the mainstream of what God is doing, and it's not. It's a very small part of what God, very important part of what God's doing, but a very small part compared to eternity. But because they don't look at it that way, they don't step back and see it from the whole thing from what God is doing, they just see it through their limited viewpoint, then that's why they, they can't get past. They just think that everybody in the Old Testament and New Testament is saved alike. They actually believe that, you know, people um, all down through the history and the future of God is going to be saved. They think people in the tribulation period are going to get saved by trusting Christ as their own personal Savior. 
you know, there's people, Christians right now, bearing Bibles and tracts so that in the tribulation the Jews will find it and they'll find a Bible, find a tract, and they'll know how to get saved. They're oblivious to the fact that God has clearly said in His Word that if you miss the rapture, you're cooked. Somebody could give you a thousand gospel tracts and God's going to send you a wrong delusion that you believe a lie. And in the tribulation period, a Jew could dig up all the Bibles he wants and he could get all the tracts that he wants and going to do him any good. I mean, uh, he's going to have to follow a complete new set of rules that is going to be given to him. And so God didn't need the Bibles buried and need the tracts. He's going to send them Moses and Elijah, Revelation chapter 11. That's all they need. But people are so inept when it comes to the Bible. You're, you're way over their heads when you start talking about things like that. <clears throat> so they get, they get messed up on it. And, uh, you know, they get to the point where they just can't simply see and understand <clears throat> that, uh, 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 what they're dealing with. And so it becomes a, a problem for them that they just never, 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 never understand the difference between the two. And they think everybody down through the, they just can't get past the point that God had a plan that's bigger than, than the church age. And that's why you got to, when you get into these things, fundamentally, you start getting the baseline for what's going to take place in eternity. <clears throat> Once you see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, you know that that's two people groups. <clears throat> one people group is going to be in a physical body ever. The other one's going to be in a spiritual body. One's going to be connected with a nation. One's going to be connected with a spiritual body. Once you get that defined and you see that, and then you see how the whole Bible fits around that, then you lift that out and say all eternity is going to fit around that. But you've got to be able to start there. So when you start seeing the two resurrections, the resurrection of the nation of Israel, the resurrection of the body of Christ, you start to go back to Ezekiel 37 and Romans 11 and then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and, and back to 1 Corinthians 15, it becomes very clear that there's something a lot bigger here that God is doing than just what normal Christianity thinks happening today. And of course, that's so true. And because of that, you know, this is where all the, uh, the ridiculous stuff comes in. I mean, I, I, I can't even tell you how goofy this stuff is out there that is floating around that people buy into. They actually, absolutely get into it and they, you know, they absolutely think that this is really the way, you know, that it's supposed to be. Well, the next one then is going to be uh, uh, Revelation chapter 11. Now, the Revelation chapter 11 talks about the sixth resurrection, and this will be the resurrection of the tribulation saints. And uh, in the tribulation period, um, the Antichrist goes after the nation of Israel at the three-and-a-half-year mark. He, he wipes them out um, to the point where they're down to a very small remnant. And, uh, you know, they're struggling to... Uh, to survive the Antichrist from many Old Testament passages is hunting them down and, and killing them. Uh, he's actually, to get in technical, he's actually taking the Jews that they catch, offering them up for literal sacrifices to Baal or to himself, eating their flesh and drinking their blood, um, you know, in form of religion. 
and that's all uh, the Roman Catholic Church right now is all uh, setting everybody up for that because every time you go to Mass, you're eating the literal body of Christ and drinking the literal blood of Christ, so why not? I mean, it's all, it's all set. It's all been moving along for a long time. And in Revelation chapter 11, you have Moses and Elijah showing up. Now, Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses that show up in the tribulation period. Um, most people think that, uh, and here again, let me show you how, how detailed the Bible is. Most guys in Bible teaching who even get this far, they, they, can't, they can't put their heads around the fact that it's Moses and Elijah. Uh, they try to make it uh, Moses and Enoch. Uh, you know, and the case, and and of course, you know, it's just r ridiculous. And the reason why it's Moses and Elijah, I mean, if I was just, I mean, if I didn't know anything about the Bible at all, other than just the basics, I would know that Enoch couldn't be involved with it because we're dealing with the nation of Israel, and Enoch was never connected to the nation of Israel. Uh, I would know that Moses represents the law. That's very important to, that's a whole segment of the Old Testament to the Jew. Elijah represents the, the prophets. That's a whole another section connected to the Jews. Those two sections are vital to the nation of Israel. Now, the reason why you know that it's Moses and Elijah is that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, you have the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Mount of Transfiguration is a prophecy going beyond Christ's earthly ministry, and he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, probably Horeb or Sinai, where he is transfigured before them. What does that mean? God takes him from the man Jesus and transfigures him into the glorified Christ, the second coming. And all this takes place uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles for the Jew, which is the time period of the second coming. <clears throat> so at the second coming, when he's there coming back, lo and behold, the two guys that are standing with him are Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah are the last two names found in the Old Testament, which are connected with the second coming. And of course, you find them in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And there's no question about it that uh, it talks about them being two witnesses that are anointed. That'll be Zechariah chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. It talks about that they stand before God. Elijah stood before God in 1 Kings 17, 1. Moses stood before God in Exodus 23, 20. There's no question about that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. So what happens is this, and this is what you have here. You have in Revelation chapter 11, you have verse 4, these are the two olive trees of the two golden candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. They were standing before God of the earth in Matthew 17 and 1 Kings and then again in Exodus 23. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up heaven, that it rain not in the days of the prophecy, and have power over water to turn them to blood. Duh! Only two men in the Bible had that power. Elijah shut up heaven, that it didn't rain for three and a half years, and believe it or not, Moses turned the water to blood. It, if you just stick with the Bible, you get, it defines them for you. 
<clears throat> how people can get to this thing, I have no idea. It is so blatantly clear. And they uh, shall have finished their testimony. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, that'll be the Antichrist, shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So <clears throat> what happens is, <clears throat> is that the first three and a half years of the tribulation period is everything is good. When you get to that, uh, when you get to that uh, middle part, that's where the, um, the Antichrist now um, turns on the nation of, uh, nation of Israel. This is called the abomination of desolations. He sets himself up as God, demands the world to worship him. And now he, he, he goes after the Jews. He's made a false alliance with them. He's made a false covenant with them. He's protracted himself as the Messiah. They have bought into it, as the world has. Holy Spirit of God is gone during this period of time. There's no revelation from God. This is a time that the Antichrist has the whole world. And, of course, uh, now he tries to wipe them out. They flee, Matthew chapter 24. They flee Jerusalem, go into the wilderness, Elipetra, all those different places. God takes care of them like he did when they were in the 40 years wandering in the wilderness back in Exodus. To help them get them through, God sends them down Moses and Elijah. There's a good chance that Jeremiah is somewhere in the mix, though he's not mentioned here. He is mentioned in the Gospels when somebody wanted to know who Christ was and one of them said, Jeremiah, that's the key. But anyway, forget him. Uh, we got Moses and Elijah for sure. They come down and they begin to lead the nation of Israel. And they do in the tribulation what they did <coughs> in their ministries in the Old Testament, which are all types of the tribulation. Elijah, sh Elijah shuts up heaven that it doesn't rain uh, for three and a half years, which forms one of the greatest uh, keys to the, to the tribulation period, the former and the latter rain that you'll find in the Bible. Anytime you find the former and the latter rain or the latter rain or just the former rain or just the latter rain, context is going to be the tribulation at the second coming. Find it in James chapter 5. <clears throat> Very clear. Moses represents the prophets, uh, the law, excuse me. <clears throat> and he has the power to turn the waters to blood like he did uh, back in Exodus with, against Pharaoh, who's a type of the Antichrist. Elijah's up against Ahab and Jezebel, type of the Antichrist, type of the Roman Catholic Church. Everything fits. But as we get down toward the end, they get killed. And uh, they, uh, they, and they, and, and uh, it says, and they're, Senator uh, uh, of the bottom of the pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. This is Jer Jerusalem. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues of the nation shall see their dead bodies three and a half, uh, uh, three days and a half, and shall not suffer their bodies to be put in grave. Obviously, he's making a spectacle of them, showing that the world, that he is defiant, that he's overcome um, even the people that God has sent him. It's a great propaganda trick. And they dwell on the earth shall rejoice over them and shall make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. It's real party time. I mean, uh, uh, everybody, they, these prophets were responsible for a lot of plagues, a lot of problems, a lot of issues that plagued mankind that the Antichrist couldn't stop. Now it looks like it's over and they're all happy because, you know, they just can't do a damage anymore, so they think. And after three days, 
and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon uh, them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake there were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted. Um, the second woe was passed. Uh, and look at verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Notice it's His Christ. Most people don't even figure that. If you don't have that mark, you want to mark it. You find it here, and then you find it uh, again in Revelation 12:10, And uh, it's a reference that uh, the devil is also a Christ. Christ means anointed. And you want to throw in Ezekiel 28, 14, and you want to throw in Luke chapter 2, verse 26, just for good measure. <coughs> I don't know what they mean, but I got them here, so you can hear them too. <coughs> Off the top of my head. So the devil is a Christ too. And so he's making a distinction that both are anointed and both have a job to do, but he's making a distinction that it's his Christ. But verse 15 is the second coming of Christ going into the millennium. So here's what you have. Notice the phrase in verse 12, come up hither. You find the phrase come up hither in your Bible three times. Once in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15, uh, excuse me, 25.5, so sorry. Once in Revelation 4.1, <clears throat> and now we find it a third time in Revelation 11.12. Uh, uh, I told you before that the rapture is likened to a harvest, and a harvest has three parts. So the three parts to what we commonly call the rapture, or our gathering together unto the Lord, will be the Old Testament saints being gathered in, the church being gathered in, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then the tribulation saints being gathered in and taken up to heaven here. Each place is designated by the term, come up hither. So in Proverbs 25, 5, that'll be the Old Testament saints going up. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 will be the church going up. <clears throat> and in Revelation 11:12, 12, this will be the tribulation saints going up. Three parts to a harvest. You have the first fruits. That's the stuff that's ripe early. That'll be the Old Testament saints. You have the main body of the harvest. That'll be the church. And then not everything is ripe. You've got to go back at a period of time and get what they call the gleanings. That'll be the tribulation saints. Rapture likened to a harvest. So Moses and Elijah <coughs> represent the tribulation saints. They get killed. They lay in the street three and a half days. Life comes up to them. And then they hear a voice from heaven saying, come up hither. They are taken up along with the tribulation saints that are left on this earth. And then in verse 15, the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of his Christ. So it all takes place right there at the second coming. If I was to put it in a scenario for you to put all the pieces together as best as you can in a human mindset, here's how it looks like it works. <coughs> We'll pick it up at the middle of tribulation. Antichrist turns on the Jews. He gets them, you know, killing them, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, Moses and Elijah are leading and guiding them. At some place along the line, they get caught and killed. The Jews run down into battle of the Valley of Armageddon as the last holdout sanctuary. I'm not sure where the body of Moses and Elijah is. Is connected to all this? doesn't say. 
doesn't really matter, I guess. Um, but they're down there. And that three and a half days that they're dead will be the last three and a half days before the Lord comes back. The Jews will be down in the valley of Armageddon, surrounded. Moses and Elijah will be dead somewhere around there, if not there. And then on that moment in time, then they hear the voice that says, come up hither. They come back to life, excuse me, they come back to life first. They hear the voice come up hither, and as the Antichrist descends to wipe them out, everybody is raptured out while the Lord is coming back at the second coming. It all seems like it takes place in an instant, just like our rapture does. But the sequence has to be pieced together throughout the Bible when you get this event, this event, and then you see the timeline unfold. There ain't one place where you can go where it's laid out clearly. Um, you have to look at each piece, see the overall time frame that you're dealing with, and then put the pieces in that time frame, which may, which is, I'm going to tell you right now, it, it, it's as accurate as you can get, but there could be pieces missing that we don't see. But as far as the material we have, that's as accurate a rendition that you're going to get because we know that things happen quickly. We know that things all happen at the same time. It's a lot like after you get past Revelation chapter 6, or starting with Revelation chapter 6, you have four accounts of the second coming of Christ. Most guys teach that these accounts, they don't see it that way. They see it that the one section is taking place, then the next section takes place, then the third section takes place, then the last section. They do not see that each of the four sections are all four different accounts of the second coming of Christ. That it's not this happens, then section two happens, it's that they're all happening at the same time. God is giving you four accounts of the second coming of Christ. Somebody said, why? Because the Bible's consistent, and he gave you four accounts of the first coming of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, so there has to be four accounts of the second. When you see it that way and put it, it puts everything in a workable guide timeline, even though you can't get it exact because you don't know everything that is, uh, there may be a piece you're missing someplace along there, but that's fundamentally as accurate as you're probably going to get it. Yeah, Jenny? So this number six is just the resurrection of Moses and Elijah. This is the resurrection of the tribulation saints who are represented by Moses and Elijah. So you're saying... When Moses and Elijah go up, the tribulation saints go up. Are they dead right here? Some of them are. Because like every time it's saying them, it's talking about Moses and Elijah. It is. Moses and Elijah represent the nation of Israel under the law and the prophets. So he's speaking to the nation of Israel through them, and they are representing them. So when they're dead, Moses and Elijah is dead. A lot of the Jews have been killed. A lot of them are still alive, a remnant anyhow. And so when, they, when Moses and Elijah resurrect and they go up, they take the tribulation saints with them, and they all go up at the same time. Those that are alive, those that have been dead, and Moses and Elijah. I'm not following. Is, so you're saying in 12. Um, well, the remnant, the remnant here is not the nation of Israel. The remnant of here is the connected people with the Antichrist who see it all happen and are scared to death now by what God just did. 
that remnant there is not the remnant of Israel. They go out with Moses and Elijah. So on the, per, the number four, the one you started class with, what, so what timeline does that happen? Is that at the end of the millennium? The what now, honey? The resurrection of the nation of Israel. The re, okay, the resurrection of the nation of Israel. <clears throat> when you study that, you're studying a long series of events that started in the latter part of the 1800s, comes up to... <clears throat> the tribulation period, millennium, when the dry bones are put back together, and then moves on into the millennium. It's a different study than this one. This one, where, where that one is a picture of the nation of Israel being, being resurrected, this is a picture of the individual tribulation saints being resurrected in their physical bodies. Who would, who would be in that group, though? Everybody from the tribulation period that was dead and killed, and the ones that are still alive. Well, who else would it be? Well, because I, they've all rejected Christ up until, you know what I mean? They've well, in, during the tribulation, once, once the Antichrist reveals himself, <clears throat> the Jews that now see and understand they have been deceived, they run into the wilderness and that's why God sends them Moses and Elijah to give them the truth. They follow the truth, but many of them are killed by the Antichrist for turning and going with the Messiah. Some of them survive. The ones that are dead, that are killed, now that they believe, and the ones that are uh, survived are the ones that go up with Moses and Elijah. That help you? You sure? You got that. You got that Jenny smile. Well, because you know they reject Christ, so it's like they can't get saved right now unless they believe they trust Christ. But then when it turns to the tribulation, then it, I've always thought that it's just the 144,000 men that are saved during that time period. Well, that can't be true because in Matthew, uh, what is it, 22 or 23? the 144,000 go out and evangelize Gentiles. Those are the guests that get to come in. So the 144,000 are all Jews, but they are evangelizing Gentiles who are coming into that fold. <clears throat> and then you have the other Jews that are not part of the 144,000 that make up the rest of the Jews. So the 144,000 is, is that remnant but they are evangelizing Gentiles from, uh, uh, I think it's Matthew 22, where they're going out into the highways and the byways, and they're bringing in, and the wedding is furnished with guests. Those are Gentiles coming into the tribulation through their preaching. They also are going to obviously reach some of the Jews. How many of that, whether it's a big number or a small number, um, is, you don't know, but it's all three of those groups. But I, you know, I can see what you, I, I can see what you're saying by that 144,000 because so much emphasis is put on them. Now, I've said this before too, and it may be, by the time we get to the Valley of Armageddon, <clears throat> it may be that all the nation of Israel and the Gentiles <clears throat> and everybody else are wiped out down to 144,000. That that is the final number that he lifts off. I don't know that. But that 144,000 is there for a reason. That is a remnant number. There's no question about it. Now, that may be the last remnant number that they're killed down to 144,000. You don't know for sure. 
but they are not. They they go out and they are evangelists. Their job is to evangelize <clears throat> the Gentiles who have not heard the gospel yet, and the Jews obviously who haven't heard it either. <clears throat> and now this is why. I mean, this is where you get. This is where you get down deep in the Bible. And I wasn't going to say this, but Jenny's question is so really a good question. It it demands for me to say this. This is why you have all these stories in the Bible. This is why in the Old Testament you have a guy by the name of Nahum who's a leper, got a mark on him. And he gets baptized by Elijah and his leprosy goes away. That story is probably a picture of a Jew in the tribulation who before he knew the truth took the mark of the beast. Once he knows the truth, and he wants to follow the truth because he uh, can get the truth, he, that he gets baptized by Moses and Elijah, and God removes the mark off of him just like he took it off of Nahum. Let me tell you something. The story of Nahum in the Bible is a tribulation context. It's in there for a reason. So there's a lot to the tribulation that I never preach because I try to keep it as simple as possible. We'll talk about it here because you're, you know, you're the cream of the crop, so to speak. I mean, if anybody can grasp it, you guys can. But I, I would never, not necessarily get into that on Thursday night. Ah, I might, but I wouldn't be, I'd be very careful who I said it to. But all those pictures in the Old Testament are showing you what's going on in the tribulation. And there's a really good chance that just as Nahum was a leper who had to go down in baptized in Jordan, I'd say that the baptismal spot, if that's true, and I personally believe that it is, if that's true, and in the tribulation, before the Jew get revealed, that he takes the mark, and then he gets the revolution, revelation of God's truth and sees it, and knows he's been deceived, I guarantee you the spot in Jordan he's got to be baptized in is the same spot where Christ crossed over, where Joshua crossed over, that they put the 12 stones down as a memorial and took the 12 stones. That's there for a reason. That's a special spot. It all pulls together when you start to lay it all out and then you see it. But I just never get into it to that depth because of the fact that, you know, it's, I don't want to confuse anybody. And here, you know, we talk about everything. You know, if you, you're good enough here, like Jenny, you ask questions and you get your answers or you whatever, we work it out. But, you know, I'm very careful how I, you know, how I lay stuff out like that because not everybody's on a level that they can grasp at. But the tribulation is more. It's a lot more. It's like, I, who did I, oh. Was it you guys or the people ministry? I, last time I showed, everybody puts the emphasis on the mark of the beast. But I showed you where God marks his people. Yeah, was it you guys or the people ministry? Doesn't matter. Both look <laughs> the same. But anyway, this is the thing. There's a lot going on there that you don't get, you know, just by your standard Bible teaching on the tribulation period. I'm careful with it. But there's a lot of stuff going on. That's why I threw with that thing about Jeremiah. Jesus said one time, who do men say that I am? One of them said, Moses and Elijah. Okay. Then somebody else threw in Jeremiah. You think that was just an accident? You think that guy just liked Jeremiah and said, I hope you might be Jeremiah? No. That's in there for a reason. 
And when you look at Jeremiah, Moses and Elijah, I'm just throwing this out now, Moses and Elijah, one represents the law, one represents the prophets. But Elijah, or but Jeremiah, he's the only man in the Bible told not to marry. He is a type of the 144,000. The only man in the Bible who's told not to marry, he's to stay a virgin because he is a type of the 144,000. It may be Moses and Elijah with the nation of Israel and maybe Jeremiah with 144,000. That's there for a reason. Now, you can't connect all of that because you don't have all the pieces. So I just stand back and know that the piece is here and it fits here. I just don't know how to bolt it in yet or probably never figure out how to bolt it in. But it's there. It's like that thing with Nahum. It's like the 144,000. Yeah, there are people out there who most of the Jews up to the first half of the tribulation probably took the mark. Now what do they do? That's why you have Nahum. Nahum had a leprosy. That's a spot like the mark of the beast. The leprosy in the Bible is a type of sin. It's always connected with the Antichrist. But he goes down and gets baptized in Jordan seven times. Comes out, mark gone. So it's all there for a reason, kids, I'm telling you. And it's just, just how deep you want to go with it. And then you get so deep, you don't know what to do with it. So and then you just put all the pieces out and look at them. Yeah. Where is that spelled out? Well, it's not spelled out in the tribulation in Revelation because Revelation is dealing with the is dealing with the Jews. So you'd find it there in I think it's Matthew 22, where he's going out after the Gentiles. Now, well, yeah, yeah, but you're, you're you know if if, if if the if the Bible if God put everything in that there that He has to say to the Gentiles in the tribulation, we'd have a lot bigger Bible than we have. You're, you're given the information that they're first of all, you're told that they have to wash their own robes. That's the first thing that they're told. Second thing is they have to keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the second thing they got to do. Third thing they got to do they got to endure to the end, or the fourth thing they got to do they got to get their head cut off. So they would have that pretty clear. I'm sure that they're passing out tracts with the four things, four spiritual things you got to do to make it in the tribulation period. If Chris wasn't saved and he didn't go in a rapture, he'd be down at Westport passing them out to the Jewish people down there, I guarantee you. Thank God he's saved. He won't be after doing that. Yes? So in Revelation 6 9. 6 9? Those are the ones in the tribulation period that are killed. Okay, so at this particular point... It could be Jews and Gentiles. But it's before, before the rapture of the... Yes, it is. So, at the rapture of the church, uh, the sons of God that are dead come back with Christ, right? Yes. 
I have you, the souls under the altar. I have no idea. I, I think that if you want my own personal opinion on it, I think their souls under the altar, even though they're dead, the altar is the protection in the Old Testament. I would say that that souls, this is going to be really good because it's coming on strong right now. I would say that the souls under the altar are the same thing as even though you and I are here in mind of God, we're seated in heavenly places even though we're not. The altar is the place of protection in the Old Testament. So in God's mind, even though they're dead and their, and their souls are in Abraham's bosom, that's where they got to go. In God's mind, they're the souls under the altar. That's what I would say. And that's really good. Yeah, that's excellent. That was called in from the, from the bench. That's a great question. I never thought of that before. Or if I did and I didn't want to think about it because I didn't know the answer. But that was good because the minute you asked that, it just popped right out of my head. That, that's got to be what it is. Because you, when you go over to Revelation chapter 20, well, we're going to get there in a minute. We'll still be, I'll show you in a minute. We'll get there in a minute. We, we, we good with this one? You know, you know what we're doing now. All right, let's look at the last one here. <laughs> Revelation chapter 20. The last one is the resurrection of the unsaved dead. I preached on this a couple weeks ago. Very passionately, I might add. Now this will be 2011. And I, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Uh, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now this is the last... This is the last. Um, this is the last resurrection and the last judgment. We studied this when we came through the seven judgments. Here again, see how they're connecting together. Now, obviously, let's talk about who we got here. First of all, we've got all the unsaved people that we all know and love from from wherever to up now and up to this that are in hell and die without Christ. That's a that's a giving. But here's what you got in the tribulation period. Let's just look at this from a tribulation standpoint. We know who everybody else is. We know that the tribulation saints, or the Old Testament saints, when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom. Notice uh, that would be death. And notice hell, death and hell, two compartments to it. So uh, we know that in the Old Testament, that's where the Old Testament saints went, Abraham's bosom, which was death. Now, right now it's empty. Uh, the hell's still full, uh, but the, the, the death part, or Abraham's bosom, is where death for the Jew is empty. Nobody there. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Uh, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Now, there's your, uns there's your fallen angels. Now, I know everybody says that's to all the sailors that died in all the wars. <laughs> I know, that sounds wonderful, but it's not. The sea there is the great deep, and that's the, un, that's the unclean spirits, the fallen angels. And death, there's Abraham's bosom, and hell, there's the unsaved side. 
delivered up the dead which were in them. Now, Abraham's bosom goes back into effect during the tribulation period. And during the tribulation period, they are in, they are in, um, they are in, uh, they go to Abraham's bosom when they die. They can't go to heaven because they haven't been saved by the blood of Christ. They, so they have to follow the Old Testament concept. So they, they go to, uh, they go to uh, Abraham, Abraham's bosom on, on the side where Lazarus was. The other side is hell where uh, the unsaved people are. So you have three people, four people groups showing up here. Five, let me think. You have all of our unsaved people. You have the fallen angels. You have the um, saved Jews and Gentiles. And then you have the, uh, well, all the other unsaved people that w went in it. So they'd be it. So you got those people groups showing up. Now, the great white throne judgment takes place right at right at, so this is where all this stuff comes together, because the first question is, well, I thought he brought all those people up, so how would they be there and come death and hell delivered up when he took all those people up at the resurrection? That's a good question, but the answer to that is because all this happens instantaneously. When this whole thing blows up and this whole thing happens, you know, they get resurrected and they go up there, but then we go through a millennial reign of Christ, and through a millennial reign of Christ, People die again. And when they die in the millennium, because no man's going to live to be a thousand years old, they're going to live long life, but they're going to die. And when they die, they go down to Abraham's bosom again. And then at the great wine throat judgment, which happens instantaneously at the end of the millennium, all these people groups show up. Everybody that died in the, uh, everybody that died in the tribulation uh, will have to show up. All the Old Testament saints will have to show up. Uh, well, let's forget about them for a moment. No, they have to show up too. Uh, the tribulation Gentiles have to show up, and the millennial saints have to show up, Jews or Gentiles. They all have to show up because they have to have their name written in the book of life. So it goes through a process where everybody's name is found in that book. That'll be the Old Testament saints, that'll be the tribulation saints, that'll be the tribulation Gentiles, it'll be the millennial Jews, it'll be the uh, millennial Gentiles. They're gonna, people are going to die in the, in the millennium and they're going to go to Abraham's bosom and they all come up here. And all of those people have to be found in the book of life. And it says, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That'll be all your unsaved people all the way through the scope of the Bible. It'll also be your fallen angels. The ones that names will be found in it will be the ones that followed Christ in the tribulation, the Old Testament saints that did what was right. You're going to also find the uh, tribulation Gentiles. When you get into the millennium, it lasts a thousand years. People are going to die there, and they're going to come up. That's death and hell. They're going to show up, and they're going to have to have their names found in it. And then everybody that does goes into the eternal kingdom of God as it's established now, <coughs> everybody else is cast in a lake of fire. Now, that's a big piece of Bible, but that's what you got. And that judgment there comes at the end of the millennium. And you have people that all everybody has taken up with Christ during the, at the second coming. Uh, and uh, they come to the point where at the second coming of Christ, we go into the millennium. Death is empty now. Hell is full. 
We move through that 1,000 years. People die during the millennium. They have to go back down to death. And then at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, when Christ comes back, that's when God shall wipe away all tears. There'll be no more death. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. It's the end of death. There is no more death because God's plan now goes on without any physical death. And that's what you got. Yes, ma'am. They go up at the end of the tribulation, and well, they go up with Christ, but let me say, they go up at the end of the tribulation, and then everybody goes into the millennium. Okay, so if they haven't been judged yet, is they're going to be judged at the great white throne judgment? Is that correct? Yes, they will be. So what are they doing during the millennium? They're, they're part of the temporary kingdom of the millennium, when God is now giving the promises that he promised to Abraham to the Jews. But they are not the eternal promises. They're the promises that was given to Abraham in the land grant of that first covenant, which now God has instituted a new covenant. That government then at the end of Revelation 22, verse 11, moves into Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Of the increase of that government, there shall be no end. And now it moves out into eternity. It can't go out into eternity till Revelation chapter 20 that everybody is accounted for. Once they're accounted for in whatever category they are, unsaved people, saved tribulation Jews, saved tribulation Gentiles, millennial Jews, millennial Gentiles, Old Testament saints, once they're all accounted for, then God goes into the everlasting government covenant, and that's where Isaiah 6, verse 9, verse 6 and 7, the increased government goes into eternity. Yeah, excellent question. Yes, sir. Well, there seems to be two books in the Bible you list here. There seems to be uh, the book of life, which, and this is the one that in Malachi, Moses was afraid that he was going to get his name blotted out of, or not, not Malachi, in the Old Testament. In Malachi 3, God says, I have a book of remembrance for the people who thought about me. So that's got to be the book of life. And now over in Galatians, you know, I think it's Galatians, it talks about the Bible as the collective book of life, and that's a different thing. But there seems to be a book of life that the Old Testament saints are put in, tribulation saints are put in, and the millennial saints are put in, that when that book is opened, their name is found in it. You and for me, there's one called the Lamb's Book of Life. It doesn't show up here at the Great Wine Throw Judgment. The Lamb's Book of Life, I would say, Lamb being Christ, died on the cross, that is the name, that is the book that you and I are in. That's what I would put it. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So does that mean that if they were tribulated saints, that they could have their name blotted out and not, you know, after the millennium? No, it means that in the Old Testament, they could have had their name blotted out. Okay. Yeah. Moses could have had his name blotted out. Yeah. Um, if they made it through the tribulation and died or went up in the rapture, they're good to go. Yeah, I'm not saying that in the tribulation they could not have stayed with the, lost the mark, changed their mind. Um, this is just hypothetical now. They, they saw, they ran away. They saw um, the Messiah. They got baptized, lost the mark. And then, you know, two weeks later, 
you know, got a better deal and went back to the Antichrist. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that happened, but if that did happen, then they would be blotted out at that point. But in particular, that verse is dealing with Moses and his concern over it, and that would be Malachi 3, that would be the book of remembrance that God wrote. And he very clearly tells you that it's a book that God put together for people who thought about his name. And that would be anybody who switches over. Yes, sir. Well, that's that's that book, but inspirationally we take it and preach it to us, but doctrinally it's not. It's to them, but it works. It works. I mean, you know, good preaching. Uh, but it's a it, fundamentally, as you find it, Barry, it's talk at the Book of Life. But there again, a lot of good things you can take and inspirationally apply. Um, you know, I mean, if you if there is if there was any book that God had a book for your thoughts, it'd be the book right here, because He's reading your thoughts, what you're thinking about His book. So it works. It works. It works. Yes, sir. Yes, every unsaved person. Well, you mean set, even like Old Testament saints? Like yes, everybody. Okay, so anyone, anyone that has died outside the church is resurrected. But clearly, David is the prince in the millennium. Right. So he's, he's resurrected or brought back to life or something, right? Yeah. Not that are mentioned. David would have to be simply because that he was prophesied as Christ was the son of David. And in Ezekiel, he is the prince. He was the greatest king Israel ever had. So that would set him in a category all by himself. But nobody else is mentioned. So the 24 who sit in judgment, is that... Yeah, you don't know who those are. I think it's Jerry Falwell, uh, John R. Rice. I don't know. There's no way to know who they are. Guys have said because of where that's found, it could be people from the church area. But I don't know. There's no way to know that one. I don't know. Twenty-four, two times twelve. So I don't know. It's it, you can't get a handle on that one. I don't know. I just know there are twenty-four guys. Yes, ma'am. Bathroom is right down the hall. Oh, yes. Yes. Now you know. All that we've talked about here brings up an incredible deal, and that is that that great white throne judgment could take a million years. We get the idea it's over in 20 minutes. Of course, there's no time where we're at, so I guess it doesn't doesn't matter. But you could you imagine that every person who's ever lived is going to have a chance to come up and and argue their case. I mean, this is going to be no mass execution. Everybody is going to get a chance. And the, and the indication is in the Bible, here again, going down really deep. The indication is in the Bible, it's a, it's a great white throne judgment. It's a courtroom setting. And the indication is from back in Zechariah and some of those places, God's on the throne. We are judging with Christ. And every unsaved person comes up and tries to argue his righteousness before God, 
and it's a courtroom where Jesus Christ is the uh, Jesus Christ is the the one who where the righteousness was. You have to try to get over that, and the Bible gives the indication that at the devil, the one that you served so faithfully and well, get this, the indication is from back in the Old Testament that the devil at your judgment, at the great white throne judgment, for everyone say amen, is the prosecuting attorney that every time you open your mouth to justify it, he brings up something you did and nails you. Now that's the indication in the Old Testament. You have Zacharias showing up there and Satan standing at his right hand. Wow. That's crazy, man. That's crazy stuff. You get little glimpses of that thing. It's a courtroom. It's a judgment. And you can't have a judgment without a, you know, and a tribulation saint comes up. Devil's going to try to whack on him just like he did Job. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to stand up and say, Father, he's absolved from all this. He kept the faith of Jesus Christ and the Ten Commandments in the tribulation. God says, next, move off. Guy comes up and he says, well, I won't tell you. I went to church every Sunday. I object. Let me run this back for you. We have secret cameras going. Here he is sitting in church. Here he is looking at the legs on the piano player. <laughs> ah, look, here's mine now. A little later on, he's thinking about who's winning the ball game back home. I know where God's being preached. Went to church every Sunday, did you? I tell you, you may have had your body there, but your mind was someplace else. Yeah, but I never killed anybody. Wait a minute. I object. Let me show you this one. I hate that guy. Excuse me, Your Honor, but I do believe in the boat that you did right that I didn't do very well with. I do believe you said if a man hated somebody in his heart, he's a murderer. The judge says, sustained. Next. Got to get you. And you know what the funny thing is? If it's funny, it's hilarious. The very devil that some people, God's people, and all the unsaved world, love so much, serve so faithfully, are so diligent in being in his churches all around the world, on the golf course, and the football stadiums, and all of those big cathedrals that he has, at the end, they're going to be the one that you serve so faithfully is going to turn on you and make sure you get damned in the lake of fire with him. If you can get that message out to the world, they just laugh at you. They wouldn't believe you. So I just keep my mouth shut. Now, the last thing I want to say is this. This is bad preaching, too, so you might as well get it all. <laughs> I've been guilty of this. Every preacher that's a good preacher will play on this. And that is, you know, that you're at the great white throne judgment, you know, you're going to shed tears for the lost people that are there. Maybe your mom or your dad who's not saved. Maybe, uh, you know, a friend that you never witnessed to. Uh, and guys play on that, you know, the fact that you're going to stand there and they're going to plead, why didn't you tell me? And, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you know, let me just say this to you. That'll all take place for you and me at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, that'll, that'll all be taken care of there. The Bible makes it very clear that when we get to this judgment, we have already washed our robes, and they are white and spotless. 
I want you to know that there may be people that are your friends or your family, brothers and sisters, that may look to you and cry out to you why you didn't tell them the gospel and why you didn't. And maybe you did, or maybe you didn't. It's immaterial at that point. At that point, you will be just like Christ, judging in righteousness, and that plea and cry will no more affect you than it will Christ for what he did for them, and they rejected it. You're gonna, we're going to be judging with Christ as Christ because we're going to be a Christ. And everything in that judgment will be based on the book that God gave us. Our emotions will be in check to the Word of God and not to what we did or what we didn't do back in the day. That'll be taken care of with the judgment seat of Christ. So just so you understand that. Which to me makes it even more imperative, maybe this is just me, to tell people that need to know now because from a human standpoint now, knowing that, it's hard for me to think that I would, don't want to be that indifferent to somebody. Uh, if I would have told them and they would have said no, then I could have just sat there and looked at them and said, told you so. Uh, but it, the fact that I'm going to stand there so adamant about their judgment and be okay with it because I've got the mind of Christ and I am Christ, right now that bothers me, then it won't. But right now it does and it gives me a little more oomph to make sure that I cover all my bases for the judgment seat of Christ in particular. But at that day, I know that it won't be a problem. You just, you'll be Christ, you'll be God, you'll be the Son of God, you'll have His mind, you'll have His body, you'll have everything, you'll be perfect judgment, you'll hate now with a perfect hatred, you'll love with a perfect love, there'll be no ulterior motive. You'll remember everything, know everything, see everything, but you'll do that about everybody on planet Earth that ever lived, because you'll have the mind of Christ. But you'll have it all in perspective of the Word of God, so your emotions won't get into it what we ought to be doing now in a limited sense because we have the Bible, the mind of Christ. But. Well, we'll hold up there.